The following podcast contains language and subject matter that some listeners may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. 5142 on 42nd Pulaski. Just be advised that uh, they do have all of Pulaski shut down between 41st and 42nd for the uh, crime scene. The official story about the shooting of Laquan McDonald starts taking shape immediately. You can hear it just minutes after the gunfire, when an officer corrects a dispatcher asking about McDonald. When you can, I'm, I need to um, get some info on the victim condition, whatever you can, when you can, okay? Defender. That's what I meant. It's agreed. The person shot is the offender, not the victim. From WBEZ Chicago and the Chicago Tribune, I'm Jen White, and this is 16 Shots, the police shooting of Laquan McDonald. In this podcast, we tell the story of how this police shooting aggravated long-standing tensions between Chicago police and the city's black citizens. Our team of reporters will look at how a city with a troubled police department spun a narrative of the shooting, how that narrative fell apart, and how the city reacted when it did. Last time on 16 Shots, we heard about the night 17-year-old Laquan McDonald was shot and killed by Officer Jason Van Dyke. McDonald's short life. You let all them hot shells go off in in some little 17-year-old, man. And we heard about Van Dyke's years as an officer with the Chicago Police Department and how he and his family have lived with the fallout from the shooting. I don't think I'll have the opportunity to ever serve in law enforcement or in any capacity in the public again. In this episode, we go back to the night of the shooting to examine how the Chicago Police Department created a narrative that Van Dyke responded appropriately to a dangerous offender. And we watch that narrative unravel. Now, in the seven years leading up to McDonald's death, Chicago officers had shot nearly 400 people, and the city had not found a single one of these shootings to be unjustified. The city had become efficient at moving past these incidents. So when Van Dyke shot McDonald, the officers on the scene had little reason to think anything would happen. They came together behind a story about the shooting, and a man named Pat Camden arrived to tell it to the public. The officers are responding to somebody with a knife in a a crazed condition who stabs out tires on a vehicle and tires on a squad car. You obviously aren't going to sit down and have a cup of coffee with them. Camden was not a public official. He was with the union that represents cops when they face discipline. That night, he told Chicago's ABC affiliate that McDonald was coming at officers with the knife. He is a very serious threat to the officers, and he leaves them no choice at that point but to defend themselves. That story, that a crazed young man gave officers no choice but to shoot him, it was repeated again and again in news media. When officers got out to chase him, he waved the knife and they shot him. Chicago police say they had no choice but to shoot a 17-year-old boy who threatened them with a knife late last night. They say that the teen closed in on them, weapon in hand, so they shot in self-defense. Police say this was a clear-cut case of self-defense. Officers on the scene put that story down on paper. They claim McDonald was swinging the knife in his hand aggressively and that he'd battered three officers with it. 
The dashcam video of the shooting doesn't show those things. The reports claim that when McDonald was 10 to 15 feet from Van Dyke, he raised the knife across his chest, over his shoulder, and pointed it at the officer. Very specific movements the video disproves. The reports say Officer Van Dyke backpedaled. The video only shows him stepping toward McDonald. And the reports say once Van Dyke had shot him to the pavement, McDonald kept trying to get up, still pointing the knife at him. But the video shows McDonald just crumpled on his side, taking one bullet after another. Reports from other officers on the scene backed up Van Dyke's version of the shooting. But there were civilians who said they witnessed the shooting and saw something different. One witness said it looked like an execution. This young mother was in the parking lot of a Burger King on the block. She spoke with Chicago's NBC affiliate. It was super exaggerated. You didn't need that many cops to begin with. And second of all, you didn't need to sh- they didn't need to shoot them. They didn't. At least two of these witnesses say they were taken to a police station and questioned for hours. Both claim they were pressured to change their stories. And there were witnesses who say they were not questioned that night. There was uh, a man and his adult son. Jeffrey Nesland was an attorney for McDonald's family. And of course, with all the police activity, they pulled over. And he was able to see the entire shooting. And what happened was an officer then comes up to his car and tells him to get the hell out of here. Now, you contrast that if it was a civilian shooting. If it was a citizen A shoot citizen B, the police would take that witness and his son, you know, bring him down to the station, take a video statement. You know, you would lock in an eyewitness to a murder. But because this was a police shooting, nobody gets his name, nobody gets his driver's license. He's told to leave the scene. So why would officers turn away witnesses or pressure them to change their story? Why would so many report a story that's false, even when there's video that could expose the truth? The code of silence was instantly put into full effect. You are conditioned to never, ever go against another officer. Chicago police officer Shannon Spaulding. You either go along with the program and be blue, or you are now the enemy. And there is no in-between. And all of that will race through your mind. There's no way that all of these officers there did not fear this. Spalding understands that fear. She spoke with WBEZ's Chip Mitchell. She told him what happened when she kept hearing about corruption in the department a few years ago. She went against her fellow officers and paid a price. Spalding worked in narcotics. She says she did undercover drug buys. Once someone sells narcotics to you on the street, they are then debriefed. She kept hearing stories about a crew of dirty cops in the department, that they'd shake down drug dealers. And if the dealers did not come up with the cash, these officers would frame them for crimes. To catch these cops in the act, Spaulding got to work undercover with the FBI. But she says some Chicago police bosses blew her cover. And before long, she says she was a pariah in the department. I was told by one of the bosses that they were ordered from their bosses not to back me up on the street. And when I said, so you mean to tell me if someone were shooting at me right now to kill me, you would not come to my rescue, to my help? And this boss said to me, no, I will not come and neither will any of your fellow officers. I can't risk my job to help you. You got yourself in this situation. 
I was walking into a lion's den every single day I went to work. I wasn't sure I was going to make it home, but not in the same way an average cop worried about. Not because of the criminals on the street, but because of the fear of the death threats and retaliation from my own bosses. Spaulding says the department pulled her from the FBI investigation, assigned her to meaningless work, and even arrested her at one point. She began a long leave of absence, and she did something else. She and her partner in the investigation brought a whistleblower lawsuit. Mayor Rahm Emanuel's administration denied there had been retaliation, but the city agreed to a $2 million settlement. Two of the officers Spalding had been investigating went to prison, and judges have thrown out dozens of convictions tied to those officers. Given the pressure Spalding faced inside the police department, I asked her about the alleged cover-up for Jason Van Dyke, the officer who killed Laquan McDonald. Apart from Van Dyke, there were nine officers on the scene during the shooting. What do you think they were feeling as they saw and heard the gunshots? They were deer in headlights. My gosh, someone was just killed. A young man was just shot. That is so traumatic for an officer to witness. But on top of that, There is going to be a narrative when you have someone like the street deputy or lieutenant handing you a piece of paper and says, this is what your report is going to say. That becomes the truth. So you have seconds to just say, yes, sir. And if I deviate from that and say, I'm not going to do that, (laughs) you will be without backup. Your fellow officers will consider you a rat, someone that you can't trust, You will not be a team player. You will pay the price. The story held up among police bosses, even a deputy chief who came to the shooting scene. He saw the video and still signed off on the reports. When the department's top officials watched it, they too went along with the story. Those officials included Eddie Johnson, who's now superintendent, and the superintendent at the time, Gary McCarthy. The thing that stuck out in my mind was... Not just seeing the video, but learning that uh, Van Dyke had fired all 16 rounds, which a lot of people don't know. is called, There's something called reflexive response, which means you fire one, you fire all when you're in this panic mode. So I, I suspected that that's what had occurred, but I was uh, obviously not pleased with it. When I saw the video, uh, I, I knew that Van Dyke was going to have a big problem. Shannon Spaulding says McCarthy as the one in charge, should have done more. The narrative was obviously false. It didn't match the video. He was aware that there was an extreme conflict. These officers, everyone that had their names on these reports, should have been stripped. No gun, no badge, no arrest privileges, pending an investigation. Mayor Rahm Emanuel says he knew almost nothing about Laquan McDonald's death for months. But records show his office was notified within hours and that it communicated about the shooting with the city's law department, the police, and the city agency that investigated shootings by officers. We reached out to Mayor Emanuel, but he declined an interview. At the time, Steve Patton was corporation counsel, the city's chief lawyer. Okay, we have this horrific videotape. We have this this police-involved shooting. The criminal authorities are investigating. The next likely event for us and for me as the city's chief law officer would be to defend a a lawsuit. 
As city attorneys braced for a suit, the mayor's office monitored news reporting and coordinated messaging. At the same time, the mayor was running for re-election. We have come a long way, and we have a little bit further to go. It turned out McDonald's family never had to file a suit. The city was willing to negotiate a settlement without one. The shooting hardly came up in the mayor's race. It would have been a very different, it would have been an avalanche. Political strategist Delmarie Cobb supported Emanuel's opponent. She says the McDonald video, if it had not been kept from the public, might have sunk the mayor. It would have changed it completely, and the fact that it didn't come out was politics as usual. Emanuel won the race. The very next day, attorneys for the city and McDonald's family finalized a $5 million settlement. The deal said the family could not release the video, at least until all criminal investigations were done. Patton, the city's chief lawyer, went before the city council where he advised Alderman to approve it. The attorneys for the estate will argue that uh, Mr. McDonald did not pose any immediate threat of death or great bodily harm to Officer A. And that instead, McDonald was walking away from the police when he was shot. Officer A was Jason Van Dyke. Authorities were still trying to hide his name. Gary McCarthy, the former police superintendent, recalls Patton's presentation. He tells the city council that they want to give this money without filing a lawsuit, and they do that all the time, which I don't think is true. He doesn't mention that there's a caveat in here not to release the video. The implication is pretty obvious. The city council did not watch the video. But they did approve that $5 million settlement. The suspicion the video had been hidden for Mayor Emanuel's re-election campaign kept spreading. Patton says he understands the suspicion, but... All I can tell you is it's unfounded and it's not right. And the objective facts, I think, refute it. There was a complete release of all the, you know, the emails. And if there had been some kind of conspiracy, there would at least be one shred of evidence someplace that that happened. Patton says the city handled this video like it had handled videos of previous shootings by officers. They turned it over to prosecutors. Those prosecutors could investigate and bring charges against the officer if they wanted to. The appropriate authorities, you know, had the videotape. They were doing what they should do. And the city had had a longstanding practice and policy that when there was an active investigation pending, they would not release evidence because of concerns about potentially tainting or interfering. Jeffrey Nesland, the attorney for Laquan McDonald's family, says his clients did not want it released. They worried it would set off rioting. And he says they were led to believe that charges against Van Dyke were imminent. And then as time went on, you know, all of a sudden the spring turned into the summer and, and we, quite frankly, would reach out to, to the FBI and say, what's going on with this? Uh, it's going to happen. It's going to happen soon. And, you know, we're still marching everybody in the grand. We've got experts in the grand jury and civilians. And and then all of a sudden it turned into the fall. And, and now it, this is ridiculous. How come this guy hasn't been charged yet? We actually supported the mayor's office and not releasing it because we were scared about what that tape coming out was going to do. Brian Sleet was chief of staff for Southside Alderman. I think a lot of times people who don't live in these neighborhoods don't understand. The fear of your neighborhood burning down is real. It's palpable. It's small business owners that would lose everything if there was a riot on this street. 
And, Sleet says, there's something more fundamental that people don't understand. Like, they're like, oh, there was this massive cover-up. The mayor covered up the video so that he would run with the election. And I'm like, no, actually, I fully believe the mayor didn't know about the video because no one cares, okay? We do so many payoffs for people in police shootings. You get to the point that you know that, like, yeah, I'm not going to get outraged about this one thing because there's been three of these every month for the last five years, and we keep writing the checks, we keep doing the things. But at the core, people don't care. In Chicago, this is normally where the story ends. There's a questionable shooting by an officer. A city investigation finds the shooting justified. There's no discipline, no criminal charges. The victim's family gets a city payout. Top officials are insulated. And the city moves on. But Shannon Spaulding, that police whistleblower, says there's something they didn't anticipate. Someone within law enforcement, with inside information, decided to say, hey, this isn't right. There's a cover-up. That's coming up after the break. Now, more than ever, facts matter. That's why the journalists at the Chicago Tribune are committed to quality journalism, relentlessly pursuing the truth, and providing you with the stories that impact your community, as well as your daily life. Get fact-based journalism and support the future of investigative reporting, like 16 Shots, by subscribing to the Chicago Tribune today. Visit chicagotribune.com slash 16shots for a special subscription offer, just for listeners of this podcast. It's late November 2014, and Chicago journalist Jamie Calvin is standing on the doorstep of a man who saw Laquan McDonald get killed, waiting and hoping. At this point, people at every level of Chicago government are coming together around the official narrative of the McDonald shooting, the one where McDonald pointed his knife at officers, the one where he lunged at cops, the one contradicted by the video. At City Hall, top aides to the mayor were notified within hours of McDonald's death. The head of security for the school district was briefed by police and kept the mayor's office in the loop. At the Chicago Police Department, patrol officers retold the story. Supervisors signed off. The superintendent and his deputies watched the video and went along with the story being told at the scene. And it worked. Within a day of the teenager's death, the story disappeared from Chicago media and the minds of most Chicagoans. We at WBEZ ran a 30-second brief the morning after the shooting. A 17-year-old boy is dead after being shot by Chicago police last night. A Chicago Police Department spokesperson says uniformed officers responded to a call about a man breaking into cars at about 9.45 p.m. in the Chicago Lawn neighborhood. Police say the teen slashed a Chicago police car and then ran away. The officers chased him and then shot and killed the 17-year-old after he refused to drop the knife. No officers were injured in that incident. Laquan McDonald's name wouldn't be heard on our station for another six months. Just about everyone went along with the official version. But there was someone inside law enforcement, someone who decided the real story needed to get out. 
That person tipped off a civil rights attorney who passed the tip on to independent journalist Jamie Calvin. The source had enough information that I was able to track down a civilian witness to the shooting. Which brought him to this doorstep. Talked to his wife, left a note for him, came repeated times, and finally he answered his door. It was lightly drizzling that day, and he stood in his doorway, and I stood sort of on the top step. He was completely appalled and frightened to have me on his doorstep, because if I was able to find him, who else might be able to find him? He was intensely worried about the possibility of retaliation from the police. He's such a fundamentally decent guy that he just couldn't, even as he was worried about me and he was going to call so-and-so and and call so-and-so to find out how I had found out about him, he couldn't help but tell me what he'd seen. And I remember, you know, saying goodbye to him and going, and I didn't take any notes while I was there because of the nature of the encounter, and writing up notes sitting in my car. That was the moment when I was all in. Calvin is a crusader. He works out of a community center with a bike shop for kids, a big room for community meetings, and a coffee shop that's a hub for journalism and advocacy. That's where we met up with him. Calvin's been reporting for years on Chicago police. It was that experience that told him the official story constructed around the Laquan McDonald shooting was not going to be torn apart by witness accounts alone. There was a machinery in place by which these stories disappear. And the police department, the mayor, the state's attorney, had every reason to believe that that machinery would work in this case. That machinery just came to a clanging halt. It it broke down. It would take more than a year for the breakdown to come. And ultimately, three separate bridges would have to be thrown in the gears before it came to a sudden, shuddering halt. The first wrench was the eyewitness, who couldn't help but tell what he'd seen. The second wrench would be McDonald's autopsy. And Calvin thought he might have a source for that. He reached out to one of the most powerful politicians in Chicago, who also happened to live near him on the city's south side, Cook County President Tony Preckwinkle. Then he waited for two months. She agreed to see what she could find out. And and I was out for a run, headed to Washington Park in the snow, winter night in Chicago. And Tony pulled up alongside me on 51st Street and gestured to me to get into her vehicle, which I did. She didn't, didn't say hello, didn't, she, uh, clearly was, was shaken. And she said 16 shots, front and back. Within a year, that fact, 16 shots, would become a rallying cry and shorthand for everything wrong with Chicago police. The Cook County Medical Examiner's report describes the wounds. Bullets ripped through McDonald's scalp, his neck, both sides of his chest, his back, both arms, and his right hand and leg. As you go from wound to wound and different sites in the body, I mean, I think of the autopsy as being as close as we'll ever get to having Laquan McDonald testify to what happened to him. In February, about four months after McDonald's death, Calvin wrote an article for Slate about the shooting. The day it was published, 
The story was forwarded around the city's law department and to top aides to Mayor Rahm Emanuel. But still, it wasn't enough to bring down the official narrative the city had shaped around the shooting. Calvin's story had the first two wrenches, the eyewitnesses and the autopsy. The third wrench, the dash cam video, was still being hidden from the public. Police shoot people often enough in Chicago that there's a pattern for what happens after. The machine moves in only one direction. There's a strange language used to tell the story. Officers don't shoot people. They are involved in shootings. The person shot is not a victim, but an offender. The offender is not killed by police bullets, but instead succumbs to his injuries. The machinery takes a police killing and renders it bloodless and routine. Despite Calvin's article, the machinery around the McDonald shooting was still working. And at the time, the man who would ultimately throw that third wrench in the gears, he was focused on a different police shooting altogether. Rakia, who was unarmed, walking, no gun found on the scene. Local activist Will Calloway says if the case of Rakia Boyd had ended differently, the McDonald video might never have been released. That was my awakening moment. So for me, I know Trayvon Martin, Mike Brown, Laquan McDonald was awakening moments for so many other people across the country. But for me, it was Rakia Boyd. Boyd was killed late one night in 2012 by off-duty Chicago police detective Dante Servan. He fired out of the window of his car at someone who he said he thought was holding a gun. He hit that person in the hand. Boyd was nearby. Servan hit her in the head. Police didn't find a gun on the scene, only a cell phone. Rakia Boyd died the next day. She was 22. I could never forgive him, never forgive him, because he took my daughter away. Servan went on trial for manslaughter in April of 2015. His trial was a landmark for the city. He was the first Chicago officer in nearly two decades to be charged for a fatal shooting. Will Calloway was in the courtroom for each day of Servan's trial. He was there when suddenly, in the middle of the trial, before Servan had even presented a defense, the judge announced he was finding the officer not guilty. Simply put, the evidence presented in this case does not support the charges on which the defendant was indicted and tried. The judge said prosecutors charged Servan with the wrong crime, that they should have charged him with attempted murder or aggravated discharge of a firearm, not manslaughter. And that was it. The end of any effort to hold Servan criminally responsible for Boyd's death. Relatives and friends of Boyd erupted inside the courtroom. For killing somebody? Are you serious? I never heard of that. I never heard of that. I'm hurt over that. We're hurt over that. To them, it felt like a setup. The prosecutor had charged Servan with the wrong crime, and the judge had used the technicality to let him off scot-free. That was tough, bro. That was that was so tough. I was crushed as a friend of the family, as an activist, as a person of color that watched some of this stuff happen to people over and over again by CPD. But I'm not sure if we would have won Rekia trial if Laquan Tate would ever came out. That loss, it put a hunger in me to go after Laquan Tate. So he got to work, making calls, making connections, driven to get the video out. 
it's a lot of Laquans around the city of Chicago, men and people that's in alternative schools that come from broken households that might have mental health issues, possibly, you know, and not getting the assistance from the state that they need. I was in DCFS, like me, Will Calloway was in DCFS. I come from a broken home. You know what I'm saying? I was a ward of the state. I am Laquan. Ultimately, Callaway teamed up with a freelance journalist and an attorney to sue the city of Chicago for the dashcam video. And a year after McDonald's death, they went to court. I just was so nervous because the last time I was in a courthouse was for Rakia, and we lost. So I'm like, oh my God, here we go, you know? And the judge took his bench, and um, he just read his decision. And I just remember at the end, he just said, I ordered for the video of, of this Laquan McDonald to be released in five business day. That's all I remember. After, in the hallway outside the courtroom, Callaway and his partners were swarmed by cameras and microphones. To this day, I ain't saw that many reporters in one place like those. And I was just like, finally, we won. You know what I'm saying? Finally. We won. Regardless what what happens after the tape come out, we force the system to do something that they didn't want to do. You know what I'm saying? And that was to provide us transparency, you know, and stop hiding what you do to us. The judge's decision came over the objections of the city and the police department. It was also against the wishes of McDonald's family, their attorney, Jeffrey Nesland. There was a real concern about the impact. If you just release this video, right, and it went viral, what would be the impact, specifically on the west side where this family is from? You know, they've lived through, not not Laquan's mother, but her, uh, her uncles and aunts had, had lived through the riots in the 60s. And there are parts of this city that have never come back from that. After the judge's decision, the city would take five days to prepare for the collision between the police narrative and what the video showed about the killing of Laquan McDonald. That's just ahead. Now, more than ever, facts matter. That's why the journalists at the Chicago Tribune are committed to quality journalism, relentlessly pursuing the truth and providing you with the stories that impact your community as well as your daily life. Get fact-based journalism and support the future of investigative reporting, like 16 Shots, by subscribing to the Chicago Tribune today. Visit chicagotribune.com slash 16 Shots for a special subscription offer just for listeners of this podcast. The video is said to be very disturbing. Police dashcam video showing 17-year-old Laquan McDonald being fatally shot 16 times by a white officer. It's ordered to be released to the public no later than Wednesday. A source also tells ABC7 that the content is so explosive there is concern about violent protests. And that has sparked a call for calm. I understand that the people will be upset and will want to protest. But I would like to echo the comments of the McDonald family. They have asked for calm and for those who choose to speak out to do it peacefully. They said they do not want the violence to be resorted in, the na- in Lacan's name but let his legacy be better than that. 
The judge's order came down on Thursday afternoon. It had only been seven months since Baltimore burned in response to the police killing of Freddie Gray. A little more than a year since police and protesters clashed in Ferguson, Missouri. Now, the machinery meant to keep Chicago police shootings buried and city leaders protected was shuddering on the brink of breaking down. Over the weekend, Chicago pastors talked about the video's pending release with their congregations. Let me be clear. I am absolutely against all forms of violence. When you resort to violence, you become just like your oppressor. I'm not going to be like Officer Servin or Officer Van Dyke. I'm not going to become the violence that they were. But I do believe in the right to protest and the right for civil disobedience. On Monday, the day before the video's release, Reverend Marshall Hatch and about two dozen other pastors were called to City Hall. That was the meeting where Mayor Emanuel warned them not to come downtown asking for anything if they didn't help keep a lid on the protesting and prevent rioting. There was an attempt at a similar meeting with activists, but anyone with any real sway refused the invitation. On Tuesday, just hours before the video's release, Top Prosecutor Anita Alvarez charged Jason Van Dyke with the murder of Laquan McDonald. It was her attempt at keeping Chicago from exploding. Maintaining public safety is my number one job, and I do not want the public to view this video without knowing that with these charges, we are bringing a full measure of justice that this demands. Van Dyke showed up to court at noon. He was ordered held in jail until the next week to give the judge a chance to see the video before ruling on bail. Good afternoon. My name is Dan Herbert, and H-E-R-B-E-R-T. Van Dyke's attorney, Dan Herbert, addressed the media. People viewing this videotape will have the brilliance and benefit of hindsight 2020 vision. People will judge the split-second actions of my client. What was my client experiencing at the time in which he made this split-second decision to fire? Thankfully, uh, that will be the standard that will be utilized in court, and we fully anticipate that we will be successful in this case. The charges came more than a year after Van Dyke killed McDonald. Many criticized Alvarez for taking too long to bring charges against Van Dyke and claimed she only did it because the video release forced her hand. But Alvarez insisted her team did a complete and thorough investigation, and these charges were coming either way. At the end of the day, I'd rather take my time and get it right than rush to judgment and get it wrong. I've been a prosecutor for nearly 30 years. I have personally investigated and prosecuted numerous cases of police misconduct and public corruption. I've been involved in hundreds of murder investigations and trials, and I've seen some of the most violent and graphic evidence and crime scene photos that you can only imagine. To watch a 17-year-old young man die in such a violent manner is deeply disturbing, and I have absolutely no doubt that this video will tear at the hearts of all Chicagoans. Within a few hours, the city would release the dash cam video, and the whole world would watch Laquan McDonald die. Next time on 16 Shots, the police shooting of Laquan McDonald. Before you watch this, people will try to tell you to be calm in your righteous anger. Chicago reacts to the video. The moment the tape drops, we're taking the streets. 
city officials deal with the fallout. Who in this administration has been through a police scandal? And I said, oh wait, I know me and many of them. And many wonder if this time reform will last. Don't tell me you're going to do it. Show me you're going to do it. 16 Shots is a production of WBEZ Chicago and the Chicago Tribune. It was produced by James Edwards with assistance from Joe Dassault. Our reporting team includes Shannon Heffernan, Chip Mitchell, and Patrick Smith. Mike Lansu is our digital editor with help from Paula Friedrich. Our senior editor is Rob Wildeboer. Brendan Banizak is our executive producer, and Steve Edwards is WBEZ's chief content officer. Special thanks to the Chicago Tribune's Jeremy Gorner and Dan Hinkle, and editors Matt O'Connor, Tracy Van Morlehem, and Angela Rosa O'Toole. And thanks to the WBEZ Newsroom, whose reporting was instrumental to this series. Additional thanks to Colin McNulty, Ben Calhoun, Sophie Lalonde, and Stefania Gomez. You can find out more about the case at wbez.org slash 16shots. Now, more than ever, facts matter. That's why the journalists at the Chicago Tribune are committed to quality journalism, relentlessly pursuing the truth, and providing you with the stories that impact your community, as well as your daily life. Get fact-based journalism and support the future of investigative reporting, like 16 Shots, by subscribing to the Chicago Tribune today. Visit chicagotribune.com slash 16shots for a special subscription offer just for listeners of this podcast.